Hello everyone, and welcome to an episode of My Perspective, Stories of Recovery Experiences. My name is Malcolm Chote. The lives of some people appear to be set along a pathway that is straight and perhaps even predictable, or so it seems. But then something happens that changes everything. The unexpected happens. The pathway is no longer straight, and it is far from predictable. Suddenly, life has many challenges and becomes even difficult. This might be one way of describing the life of our guest today, Jenny. Welcome, Jenny, to My Perspective, Stories of Recovery Experiences. Oh, hi, Malcolm. Thanks so much for having me. Jenny, you are employed as an occupational therapist with Care Squared, one of the services within the Better Health Generation. Can you please tell us about the work that you have done and the work that you do as an occupational therapist? Yeah, sure, Malcolm. So I've been an occupational therapist for about 20-something years now, and I've worked in a variety of um, organisations. I've worked with adults. I've worked in uh, work sites, workplace health and safety. I've worked with um, older people in geriatrics. And in the last couple of years, I've been, I guess, considering my career options and, and thinking about how I can serve people more and, and work into the occupation that is really meaningful and fulfilling for myself. And so I guess about a year ago, I started thinking about working with kids. I've recently uh, joined Care Squared and Care Squared Kids two sister companies under the Better Health Generation, and that's about four months ago. So currently I'm working with um, mostly kids. I work with a lot of kids with autism, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, some chromosomal difficulties, and also mental health difficulties, abuse, neglect, lots of variety. Thanks, Jenny. It sounds like it's very worthwhile work and interesting work that you're doing with Care Squared and Care Squared Kids. Have you only ever worked as an occupational therapist? Uh, yes, yes. So I went the pretty straight path that you were talking about before from high school to university and, yeah, started my career as an occupational therapist probably about, uh, yeah, as a 22-year-old, so, so very young. So I guess over the course of the career, you mature, you're obviously learning the professional skills, but you're also maturing as a person and that changes your outlook and your perspective as a professional. So Jenny, what was growing up like for you? And what were your life experiences up until the time you got married? Yeah, so in hindsight now as an adult, I can recognise that I had a very blessed upbringing. I was raised by middle-income conservative parents um, in a very safe neighbourhood here in Australia. I had siblings, friends, nothing too eventful in my childhood that went on. And I guess I, I certainly had an expectation that I would follow that straight path that you were talking about and um, go on, go to university, become a professional and get married and have kids. And I, I guess I'd just taken for granted that that road would be very straight. So, Jenny, you were expecting that the pathway of your life would be very straight, but then something happened. Yes. So, uh, along my pregnancy, about uh, two-thirds of the way through, 
I got uh, very unwell very um, suddenly and I was rushed to hospital and they found out that I had a condition called HELP syndrome which affects your blood and also you go into the organ failure and so my son had to be born immediately so I had an emergency seizure with him. He was premature and I was very sick. We were both admitted to intensive care and that was the first time I'd certainly had to fight for my life in my life and it was also doubly scary for me because I also had my child that I was scared that he would be he would die or he would come to some sort of harm as well so yeah it was pretty challenging as a young 20 something year old and lots of lessons learned at that stage and and for the coming many many years and Jenny if that wasn't enough there was yet more in store for you Yeah, so unfortunately, um, there was obviously the immediate medical recovery for myself and my son, and that all went along as as well as could be expected with a few hiccups along the way. I, I did have to have some more surgery and things. But once we got home and things were apparently settling, that's when I guess I started to really have the time to process those emotions and and really experience the enormity of what myself and my son had gone through so unfortunately as most young mothers will know you don't get much sleep and then you have a preemie baby and they're even more demanding but I also had the experience of having night terrors most nights I would wake up screaming I would have some sort of dream of some variation that my son or I were dying or falling or something catastrophic was happening. I would wake up completely screaming in a cold sweat, really fearing for my life. And obviously that was exceptionally distressing for my for my husband, exceptionally distressing for me. And, and none of us were getting much sleep at that time. So I, I just continued to, to fight that and, and put up with it because you soon learn when you work in this industry, and Malcolm, I'm sure you're the same, that unfortunately there is still a, a stigma about not coping or having difficulty managing your emotions. And so I just soldiered on basically. And, and unfortunately those night terrors got worse and worse. Everybody got less and less sleep and, and things really started to, to come undone. And Jenny, without going into too many personal details, what came undone in your life? One of, the, one of the fallouts from this episode in my life was basically my husband and I were having very different experiences of that troubled birth. So the experience for my husband was that it had been terrible and scary for both our son and me and, and we'd come through that and survived and everything should be back on that straight and narrow path. And and my experience was very difficult. I was, as many people in a traumatic situation are, I was probably in shock for quite a few months, just getting on with the, the bare essentials of life and, and jumping on that, that adrenaline to keep going. And and when I started trying to process those emotions, that was really not where he was at. I was really alone in that circumstance. 
I felt like I shouldn't be feeling these ways. I shouldn't be fearing for my life or my son's life. And I probably I felt like I was going a little bit crazy, which um, on top of the sleep deprivation, you know, is a fairly alarming kind of feeling. So, yeah, eventually I did go and, and seek some help and I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And that was really helpful, I guess, to normalise what I was going through and actually seek that support. But um, unfortunately, it wasn't available on the home front and, and everybody has different experiences. And so that marriage fell apart. Then I was left with a, a young baby. So, well, by that stage, he was about one and a half. I was alone and became unemployed <laughs> because I, I relocated. And that was probably another little bit of a rock bottom. So I moved in with my parents on single mother's pension, no job, and still recovering from all of this myself. And, and I guess the other thing that was starting to become apparent was, apparent was my, my son was a real handful. So at that stage, moving in with my parents, my mum started to help a lot more because she was close by. And it eventually became quite apparent when he was about two years old. We had a situation where he had something wrong with his hip, actually. And uh, we went to the hospital and that was investigated. And, and we were referred to a paediatrician for his hip. And my parents sat me down before I went to the appointment. And they said to me, look, we don't know how to tell you this, but we've noticed a lot of differences in in the way Harrison responds to cuddles responds to trying to be calmed uh, my mum had had five babies and she noticed a lot of differences from myself and my siblings to my son and and she encouraged me to raise that with the paediatrician and and I guess also they did a very brave thing because when you are told something about your child um, which is anything but perfect um, I guess the first thing you do is often that you get quite defensive so yeah I was angry and shocked and upset with them for doing that but ultimately exceptionally grateful that they were brave enough to raise that because um yeah, we linked in with a paediatrician there. So that was the start of another journey, and that is called autism. So, yeah, that's another kind of round around the, the roller coaster of life that I had in those first few years. Wow, Jenny, what a story. And that, that journey for you continues. How old is Harrison now? My son Harrison is 16. Yeah, so we've had a really uh, eventful time, I guess you'd call it. Lots of emotions, lots of frustration, uh, again, lots of lack of sleep. As I said to you, he was a real handful when he was a toddler. And I think a, a lot of your listeners will, who do have children with autism face this issue that these kids, you love them um, like every parent loves their child. Unfortunately, you, you don't get to switch off. They often don't sleep as well as neurotypical children. Throughout the days, they are, you know, they might be running away from you or not listening. You need to provide them extra supports. And there's also a lot of lack of support for these parents who have kids with autism because 
they do sometimes act differently to other kids. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, as a society, we tend to, to shy away from that. So I've got to say, because we were linked in to some of the wonderful services that are provided here in Australia, I found that immensely supportive. We were referred to an early childhood development centre which was set up with um, the funding, which was then helping kids with autism. And so from about two and a half, Harrison had intensive therapy. And, and this was an interesting thing for me to watch because at that stage, I'd never done any paediatrics OT. I thought that my interests lay in, in adults and, and more kind of physical acute issues. But um, obviously having my child with autism, I soon had to learn. And I was in boots and all. I was referred to obviously lots of therapists, lots of programs, numerous medical appointments, the diets, the rest of it. I've, I've done it all. And I guess that's where I had the experience as, as a parent, but through my occupational therapy lens to navigate this journey. And also I had a lot of friends, obviously, when you start working in these circles, or sorry, walking in the circles, as a parent, you make friends with other people who are in the same situation. And so I was hearing their journey and their difficulties. And, and, and yeah, there's lots of similarities there. But unfortunately, some of the similarities that we did have was with the difficulties we had navigating the healthcare system with our, our children. It's very confusing, but also one of the issues that is consistent in my friends back in those days and now nowadays the clients that I see and their parents is that it is exceptionally overwhelming knowing where to start. Jenny, you spoke a moment ago about your role as an occupational therapist with Care Squared Kids and how you've been able to provide early intervention and support for children, similar to the support that was so beneficial to Harrison. You're able to see things through two lenses, the lens of an occupational therapist and the lens through your lived experiences as a parent. How have your lived experiences as a parent, influenced and perhaps even changed the work that you do as a clinician? There were some really pivotal actions and reactions that clinicians took that made a real difference to me, some for the better and some for the worse, but they still stick in my mind today. And I certainly carry that forward into my interactions with clients today. One of them was with a clinician who I'd, I'd gone to, and this was in the earlier days, and I, I, he had the chart open. We had paper charts back in those days and uh, read through the referrals and the letters and kind of peered over me over the top of his glasses as sometimes happened in these offices. And I was kind of in a, a situation where I felt fairly belittled. You don't know where to start. You feel like you're a bad mum. Perhaps it's even your fault. Maybe it's something that I did. And you're quite vulnerable when you're sitting in that clinician's office, wondering where they're going to lead the conversation. What happened in that circumstance was he finished reading all of my information. He said hello. Then he closed up the chart and he almost did it quite theatrically. And he leaned forward in his chair and he said, so... Mum, 
what's really going on here? And the intonation in his voice, the way he led forward with intrigue, every ounce of his spoken and body language spoke to me with a message that you've got this mum, I'm interested in what you've got to tell me and you're the expert. And I had interactions with this man many times. He always took on this approach and it was so empowering. And, and that was really a key that kind of boosted me up with the message that, you know what, you're the mum. You know, your insight, your gut feeling is really, really important here. And I'm going to follow your lead here in this journey. And I'm going to be here through, through this to support. Another circumstance comes to mind, and unfortunately, this isn't so great, but again, it sticks in my mind. Uh, another clinician I went to, and again, Harrison was a real handful. And again, you go through that doubt, you know, you've been referred, you go along, the judgment's there, what will they think of me? What will they think of Harrison? And unfortunately, that response was very, very difficult and very, very different. So this clinician, after probably about five minutes, said to me, he's not listening and he won't sit still. How are we supposed to get any therapy done? And of course, again, that intonation and almost that blame in the voice was so diminishing to me. And, and the message that that sent to me was, well, I don't know what we're doing. That's why I'm here with you as an expert. Please help me. But I guess the impact of that statement for me in that moment was a lot of shame. And I really, I guess, retracted from that interaction and, and stopped going very soon afterwards. And it certainly was not helpful at, at all. It sounds like it was more than just unhelpful. Unfortunately, it may even have hindered things, perhaps. Listening to you, Jenny, I'm forming two images in my mind of the clinicians that you've described. The first image is of someone who's sitting behind a desk, looking down, looking across to the client, sitting there with all their knowledge, dispensing that knowledge to the person sitting opposite them, who's really not actively involved. And it's a case of the clinician directing the person, even to the point of telling the parent to quieten down their child. I mean, like, really, come on. And then there's the image of the other clinician, who is still the clinician, who still has expertise, training, experience. But instead of sitting across the table from the client, they're sitting beside them and they're working with the client collaboratively. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good analogy, um, Malcolm. And, and it's one that I think I've, I've thought about a lot. And, and one of the things that comes to mind is about the ego in the room. And, and unfortunately, I think when, when clinicians take a real hard expert approach it's often about their ego. It's often about them needing to be the expert in the field and, and know what's right and know the answers. And, and unfortunately, when it comes to something like 
like autism and, and many other diagnoses, there's no one right answer. And it's a really collaborative experience in terms of what's going on and what's making the issues worse, but also what the potential answers could be. And, and to waltz through those interactions with a parent with an egocentric view as a clinician, I think is very dangerous. And I, I think it's something that, that we as clinicians need to be really cognizant about and really think about, well, who is the most important person in this room? And, and oftentimes, and I've been in these conversations, we roll off the tongue, oh, it's patient-centred. What does that really mean? Does that really mean that we are going to allow ourselves as clinicians to lean forward and ask and empower parents and clients to, to believe that they have the answers and also the ability to restore themselves. I think it's something that's really pivotal in approach in these situations. Jenny, a lot of what you're talking about is consistent with a recovery model. What's your definition of recovery? Yeah, re recovery, I, I guess, without having gone through this journey, I may think that recovery is getting back to where you started and getting your, your health back together, you know, your mental health, your physical health, getting things back on track with your relationships. But I think having gone through an experience that's tested me multiple times, I think recovery is really almost that falling forward concept of re-evolving yourself, using that experience to, to, to come back to a new sense of norm. It's certainly quite different, but it's more evolved. It's more mature. It's certainly getting things back on track in terms of being happier and healthier, but it's actually using that experience to shape yourself as a better human being. So a new person, a new reality, who decides what that's going to look like? It's certainly set by the person going through the experience, but without the support of, of lots of friends and family and, and ongoing support of caring and competent clinicians, it's really hard to navigate that yourself. So certainly most of us have been down and out and and sometimes when we're in those situations we do need a hand to to set the sights on how things could begin to go and grow better and also how to get there so we all need help from time to time but again it's a collaborative effort so it takes both the clinician and the informal and the formal support people all working together and the other thing I'd like to add there is I think putting my clinician hat back on, sometimes as clinicians, we can be a little bit impatient about recovery. So we get involved with these clients. We often do some sort of an assessment. We set some sort of a goal in terms of, you know, how things should improve. And we're in a bit of a hurry to get there. So whether it be three months, six months or a year, that may seem like a very long time as a clinician, but as a client, and I guess shifting my perspective to there, you're looking at over a decade sometimes 
to really get back on track. I think it's really important to set realistic goals. And that's realistic in terms of if, if you have a real life altering event, it may well take a significant portion of your life to change it. And we as clinicians, we need to be patient, realistic with that goal and also be very supportive of our clients in not rushing them through things too fast because when you rush through things, you often gloss through them. And, and especially when it comes to emotional healing, things sometimes get buried, they get trapped and then the client gets stuck because you haven't really quite processed it. I think patience is key to recovery for both the client and the clinician. Jenny, you've spoken about concepts of patience and collaboration, and you've spoken about the importance of being realistic. And I would certainly agree with everything that you've said on those points. When it comes to recovery, I'd also add that there's a very important concept that needs to be included and applied by clinicians, and that's a sense of hope. I suspect that in the example that you gave earlier, that was something that was clearly evident from that first clinician that you described, that sense of realistic optimism or hope. What other concepts are there that are important from your perspective when it comes to recovery? I think one of one of the uh, realistic things that we all need to manage is setbacks and hurdles, unexpected hurdles. So again, going back to your straight line analogy, when we're getting involved with a client, we're often as collaborative and as holistic as we like to be, we often assess the client in their reality at that point in time. But unfortunately, life goes in roundabouts and sometimes clients get sideswiped by life. So whether it be other children getting sick, elderly parents having issues, moving, uh, relationship breakdowns, there's a whole barrage of things that can set clients right back. And I, I think as clinicians, it really is our responsible to, to hold ourselves with enough space for the clients to say, that's okay, we've got this. You know, it might be three steps forward but we can go two steps um sorry three steps backward we can go two steps forward and that's okay life doesn't have to go on a straight trajectory towards our goals there's lots of bends and bumps in the road so i would really rec recommend and, and encourage clinicians to support clients through that real life challenge jenny you're talking about resilience aren't you? Yes, absolutely. So, so re resilience is, is again, something that is uh, bandied about. But the question really is, and, and maybe this is another thing that clinicians can really proactively work with their clients towards, is really getting a game plan in place for proactive strategies that really help build up the client so build in strategies to bring them rest, bring them exercise, bring them healthy meals. So some of those really basics of a healthy life that we really need to be happening 
when we're under stress and under duress has to happen. So I, I guess it goes back to that Maslow's hierarchy. And again, sometimes us as fancy clinicians, we like to get wrapped up in lots of jargon and lots of fancy processes, theories, treatments, etc. But the real simplicity of life is that Maslow's hierarchy. So we need to start with settled home, a healthy food, exercise and love. And if we've got any of those components that are missing or a little bit shaky, let's go back to that and work on those bare basics. And, and, and then maybe we'll get back up to speed and some pick up on some of the original um, therapy goals. Jenny, do you think that your experiences and your knowledge of recovery have helped you as a clinician? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a better clinician and I'm also a more confronting colleague, I've got to say. So in private conversations and, and, and where it's appropriate, I really do feel compelled. And this is part of the reason why I've come on to your show today, Malcolm, is I'm really compelled to spread this word because I think it's so, so imperative as clinicians that we do really try our best to truly get into the shoes of our clients and imagine what it really must be like. And, and I, I really like just um, popping back to, to what you were saying earlier. You were talking about really, you know, believing that the client has powers and, and they have influence over their lives and, and they can achieve great things given the great, uh, the right support. So, it's really, really imperative that we we do that, we act like that, we challenge each other, we call it out when we're subtly giving those signs or communicating in, you know, whether it be a case conference or in notes, if something's being communicated that demonstrates that there may be some disempowerment of the client, I think it's really important to curiously explore that with our colleagues and insist that we challenge each other to, to be better and, and be better for our clients because that's what we're here for at the end of the day. If, if we can't see eye to eye with our clients, we can't imagine where it's at and we can't truly meet them where they are, we will miss an opportunity to connect with them. And in missing an opportunity to connect with them, that's where we, we miss the opportunity to make the best impact that we can with that client for a better life. What do you suggest that clinicians can do to be more recovery focused? I'm gonna offer two suggestions. One is before you walk in the room with the client, really consciously make a decision about who this is about. Is it about you and your, you and your ego or is it about the client? And what are you willing to let go of at that door? The other one is, is ask the questions, explore, talk about the emotions that come underneath the experiences that they're going from and really take that curious approach so that you really understand, and it's almost at a visceral level sometimes, what it is like for that client. So it paints a picture in your mind about how things are for them and helps shape your, your clinical interventions with them. Jenny, that concludes our time together today. Thank you for sharing your story and the story of Harrison. Thank you for sharing your perspectives 
both from a lived experience and as a clinician. I've really enjoyed listening to you. I've learned a lot listening to your stories and to your perspectives on recovery. And I wish you all the very, very best. My pleasure, Malcolm. Thank you so much.